Now please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2. And today we will consider the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us tonight and instruct us from it. Father in heaven, thank you for the holy scriptures. And again, we pray for the opening of our eyes. Lord, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, open the eyes of our faith, and speak to us through your Holy Spirit, the one who breathed out these very words. Let us receive instruction. And may Christ Jesus be glorified. We ask these things in his name. Amen. I remember as a child hearing some of the music of Tom T. Hall. I don't know if you know that name or if you know of any of his music, but he's a great uh, songwriter, storyteller, and um, he has a song titled Watermelon Wine, and it's a, it's a story of a man who's traveling, and he, he gets wisdom from an older gentleman. Uh, and one of the lines, one of the lyrics in the song where this this elderly man who's cleaning up a lounge where the, uh, the narrator is, is sitting, the, uh, the man says to him, I tried it all when I was young and in my natural prime. And uh, he goes on then to share his conclusions, uh, what, he, uh, 
what he gained, what he learned from having tried it all. And uh, of course, if you know the song, you know his conclusion is different than what Solomon uh, concludes. But uh, the point that the man was making in this song is that if all those things that he tried when he was young and when he was in his natural prime, all the things he experimented with, all the things that he explored in life and tried his hand at, he had little or nothing to show for it. And similar to what Solomon did discover, in the end, he realized really there was nothing gained. All the things he went after left him unsatisfied. So the man in Tom T. Hall's song could probably say, right along with Solomon, all is vanity. Well, if we think of the book of Ecclesiastes as being a little bit like a research paper, which in a sense it is, it's sort of like a thesis paper, um, a thesis or a dissertation on the meaning of life or what's valuable in life. And if we think of it that way, then Solomon here at this point in the, in the book is beginning to present data from his studies. He's done all the due diligence. He's done all the research. And now he's sharing what he discovered. And you, you know, and Solomon, <coughs> you know, and Solomon knew that everyone wants to live the good life, don't they? We all want to have enjoyment. So Solomon ventured immediately into an examination of pleasure. That's really the first thing he tries. It's really the first um, area that he explores. We see that in verse 1. I said, come now, I, <clears throat> I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And the theme of pleasure comes up again twice. <clears throat> at the conclusion in verse 10. So he tests all sorts of enjoyment. And he's trying to find something that's fulfilling. Something that gives lasting satisfaction. And what we discover is <clears throat> he discovers that nothing does. Now before we, before we launch into the text, I do want to make one point. <clears throat> if you look with me at verse 9. He says, so I became great and surpassed. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Now, I think I mentioned when we first started this series in Ecclesiastes that in relatively uh, recent uh, times, some have tried to uh, dismiss the, the notion that Solomon was the actual author of Ecclesiastes, and they have, have different reasons for making that assertion. Uh, traditionally, it's always been assumed that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, but some have doubted it. And one of the bases on which they do so, or try to support the, the argument that Solomon perhaps didn't write Ecclesiastes, is because when he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, if you're talking about Solomon, and if you're thinking only in terms of Israelite kings, all who came before him in Jerusalem was only David, his father, because none of the other uh, kings, well, there hadn't been but one or possibly two others anyway. So 
when he uses this expression, all who are before me in Jerusalem, they're assuming a long string, perhaps, of Israelite kings. But I don't think we need to make that assumption or, or follow that line of argument. Uh, he was only the second Israelite king to reign in Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem was an ancient city. The Jews did not establish Jerusalem. The Israelites did not create that city. It had been around uh, since uh, ancient times. You go all the way back to Genesis 14, and remember when Abraham encounters this sort of mysterious figure called Melchizedek. Melchizedek was king of Salem, which traditionally has been associated with Jerusalem. And then you go forward into Joshua when the people are taking possession of the land and they're going about the conquest of the land that God had promised to them. Jerusalem was one of the cities or, uh, that, uh, that came out against them. And David and his men, after he was crowned king, he and his men assaulted Jerusalem and the, the people of Jerusalem said, you can't come in here. And David says, oh yeah, and they conquered Jerusalem. And the reason Jerusalem was, had been important uh, throughout the, the, the centuries and the millennia is because of its geographical situation. It was situated on a mountaintop. It was very well protected or defensible. It was fortified. And so Jerusalem had been around a long time. So long before David ever sat on a throne in the city of Jerusalem, many other kings had been there. And no doubt they were great kings. And so Solomon is thinking back not just on his own father, or his own people group, but on people who reigned and lived in Jerusalem since time immemorial. All that to say, I think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. But here's the point of the passage this evening. All of life's greatest pleasures will leave you empty if they're pursued as ends in themselves. And everybody's looking for something that's satisfying. And they think, well, I've tried this, 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 and this, but if, if I could only try this other thing, then I'll find satisfaction. Then I'll be gratified. But no, all of life's greatest pleasures, even the very best things this present life has to offer, will leave you empty if pursued as ends in themselves. And so the three points I'd like to bring before you are uh, this idea of looking for something to do. That's what Solomon says he was exploring. And then the, some of the main things that people try to find fulfillment in. Work, play, and stuff. Belongings, possessions. And finally, we're going to find that Solomon reached the end of the road. Uh, he reached the limit of all these potential pleasures and enjoyments. And we'll find his conclusions there. But first of all, looking for something to do. Solomon embodied, really, in many respects, mankind's search for fulfillment. Perfect representation. And, and maybe the best qualified person to explore this matter. He gives his purpose statement in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he's trying to see what's good to do. And when we read that, uh, we need to take it as, as more than just 
a typical person's ordinary search for diversions. Like you, you move to a new town, and as you're getting settled in, your kids are thinking, you're out, they're asking you, what is there to do around here? Uh, Solomon's pursuit is more, is more than that. It's deeper than that. He's asking, when he says, what is it good for man to do? He's asking, what's really worthwhile? What will bring me some gain or other? What's fulfilling? What's going to provide me some enjoyment or some real satisfaction? And notice the qualifying statements that we find in this, uh, in this passage. Verse uh, 3, he says, uh, he's looking for things to do under heaven or under the sun, meaning in this present world, apart from God, considered separately from any reference to him. And notice another statement that's going to, uh, to loom largely as we reach the end of Ecclesiastes sometime from now. He says he wanted to see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven here in this present age during the few days of their life. So by this time, Solomon is really coming face to face with the, the brevity of life. He's confronted with the fact that our days are, are few. He confronted with what the psalmists discovered when they said things like, well, you know, our days are three score and ten, if by strength, maybe 80, yet the sum of them is vanity. He's coming to see that already. He's starting to throw out hints at some of his final conclusions that he's going to make. But he opens with this particular accent on pleasure. That's how the chapter begins. I'll test you with pleasure. Have you ever thought of pleasure as a test? Do you think maybe sometimes God tests us with pleasure? Many of you are suffering physically in the body, and that's a test. That's a trial. And it's been said many times from this pulpit that when, when we suffer afflictions, we need to be good and faithful stewards of those afflictions. And that's true, that's absolutely true. But we need to also be good and faithful stewards of our pleasures and our blessings and our good things. I remember hearing secondhand from uh, someone giving a, a lecture at one point about uh, everything is a test. You ever thought about that? Everything you experience almost every day in life is a test. How are you gonna respond to this or that situation? And remember that you, uh, everything you do, you do coram Deo before the face of God. He's watching, he sees, he hears. But Solomon says, I'm gonna test myself. He speaks to himself and says, I will test you with pleasure. And before he even gives an explanation or, or a description of, of how his study unfolded, he's already noted that this was vanity. So we know from the start that it's vanity. And he says of laughter, it is mad. In other words, it's, it's madness. It's, it's kind of almost like insanity. Because it's fun to laugh. It's fun to 
hear a good joke, have a chuckle. Um, Proverbs even says laughter does good, like a medicine. But laughter as an end in itself, as a pursuit unto itself, he says ultimately it's just madness. Don't know if there were comedy clubs in ancient Jerusalem, but if, he went, if, they, if they had some, he went, and he discovered, you know, I can laugh all night, and it really, it just becomes insanity. And along that line, notice he then says, he's going to lay hold on folly. We talked about that last time, I think, because he, he, he begins his pursuit, his study, his, his analysis uh, in trying to plumb the depths of wisdom to find meaning, but then he expands his investigation to include folly as well. And he's trying to hold on with one hand to wisdom, but he's trying to look into the nature of and the outcome of folly. Have you ever observed people that you know are either irreligious or don't... Uh, aren't serious about any kind of faith and in that sense are foolish that those people wicked people often seem to really enjoy themselves they often seem to be having a good time in life has that ever struck you apparently it struck solomon and i think that's why he's exploring folly He's seeing wicked people who seem to be finding enjoyment, who seem to be finding pleasure, and he wants to know, is there something there? Is there something to it? So he set out to explore this. And what he finds as he's looking for something to do is that fun and laughter for their own sake don't satisfy. Just yucking it up isn't going to give you pleasure in life ultimately. Because as Solomon explored this, he discovered, as we all do, that we were created to be active. We weren't created to sit back and just have a good laugh. We were created to be active, we were created to be productive and to work. And that's why his exploration of pleasure takes him into work. Which brings us to our second point, work, play, and stuff. Work. In other words, some kind of a vocation, some kind of labor. Play, meaning recreation, fun, and stuff, belongings, toys. All of these are gods of our culture. They were gods of Solomon's culture too. I think probably that's because they are gods of civilizations in every age. You put all the silver-plated statuettes and carved images aside. Uh, idols are all around us. And three of the biggest, including and especially in our age and in our culture, are work, play, and stuff. And we should note right up front that none of the things people devote themselves will satisfy them. Because these are the kinds of things that people just throw their lives into. They'll throw themselves into their work. They'll throw themselves into some pursuit of recreation or other. Or they'll be obsessed with accumulating things 
and none of it ever satisfies. So let's consider work first of all. Work easily becomes an idol, and you know that. Why does work so quickly and so easily become an idol to the human heart? Well, it's because a lot of times in what we do as a vocation, we, we tend to find our identity in that. It becomes who we are. It's what gives us meaning if we let it or if we're trying to seek meaning in it. For some, work is an escape from something else they don't want to have to face. Sometimes a person who maybe isn't getting a lot of encouragement or sensing a lot of appreciation at home, but when they go to work, people they work with appreciate them, praise them, and they like that. So work becomes an idol because of that. All kinds of reasons, sometimes multiple reasons, but work becomes an idol. And what Solomon did is he worked here. He, he went full bore into, among other things, construction projects. It says he built houses, gardens, parks, pools. Now you remember the ancient Romans were known for being these great engineers. But I've got to think Solomon, with all his wisdom, must have been able to achieve some engineering marvels in his day. And he speaks specifically of building houses. And you know he built some magnificent houses. He built himself a glorious house using cedar that was imported from Lebanon. And he built a similar house for his queen, the daughter of Pharaoh. And then above all, of course, he he built the temple of God, that temple that David wanted to build. But God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. Your son who will reign after you. He will build a house for my name. Solomon did that. And uh, I don't know if the if Solomon's temple in ancient Israel was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, but it ought to be if, if it weren't. It must have been spectacular. A lot of that spectacular nature of it was was never seen by the majority of human eyes because it's so holy. Only the priests could go inside and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and that, but once a year. But anyway, Solomon built the house for the Lord God. It was all of gold. Built according to the very design that God himself had given. So Solomon built these things. He also, in addition to these engineering projects, these, these building projects, he got into agricultural endeavors. He, he planted vineyards, he planted orchards. And we find, as you yourselves may also experience from time to time, that Solomon derived a certain amount of gratification from this work, from the work itself. He says in verse 10, uh, Whatever my eyes desired, it did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. There was a certain pleasure in the moment of doing all this work for him. So that's work. Well, let's talk about play. Recreation. That's one of the chief gods, maybe the chief god of America today. Recreation. What do I do for fun? Sports. What are my hobbies? And Solomon pursued recreation and he pushed recreation to the limits. He even exploded the limits. We're we're told in verse 7 that he had servants. 
I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he had lots of manservants, maidservants in his household. You know, and the more people you have doing the work for you, the more time you have to just relax and enjoy. And Solomon had many, many servants. He also had, I think if we we look carefully at this text, we find out he had entertainers because some of these servants that he had, for instance, were singers, we're told in in verse 8. And nowadays, if you want to hear music, you can turn on the radio or turn on your uh, media player and listen to whatever music you want anytime you want. Or if you really want to lay out a whole lot of money, you can go to a concert you can put, lay out however many hundred dollars it costs to go see Taylor Swift or uh, you know, whoever the most popular country singer is or rock star is. If they're coming to Savannah, if they're coming to Charleston, you can go. It was a little different in the ancient world, but for a person like Solomon, a person with the resources of Solomon, he could have singers in his home and have live concert right there in the in the house of the forest of Lebanon anytime he wanted verse 2 we'd already discussed the this matter of laughter which I think just points to play you know fun is there satisfaction to be found in in that and he discovered that there wasn't ultimately he speaks of wine we could take that to refer to, to drink in general. Look with me again at verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. <clears throat> so when he says uh, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom, I think what we can take that to mean is Solomon wasn't just going to say, I'm going to see how fun it is just to get slobbering drunk. That's not what he was doing. He was testing wine. He was testing this strong drink. He's doing it cautiously, doing it carefully to see if there was something tangible, something satisfying to be found in it. He tried that. And I'll try to be delicate about this, but you know, in terms of uh, sensual pleasures, Solomon pursued that as well. Up at the end of verse 8, it says he had many concubines. Now that is an understatement. But Solomon had many concubines. He had access to that sort of physical pleasure at any time he desired. And he had um, a staggering number of options. We're told in 1 Kings 11, Solomon had 700 wives. 700 wives. And in addition to 700 wives, 300 concubines. So if there was satisfaction and fulfillment to be found in that kind of pleasure, the one person on earth who could certainly have discovered that would have been Solomon. But he didn't ultimately find fulfillment in work or play, and he didn't find fulfillment in stuff things, possessions. And we talk about how materialistic Western society is, how materialistic uh, American culture is. But that's nothing new. 
Solomon amassed silver, he amassed gold, he amassed treasures of all kinds. He had more of it than any king on earth in his day. It also mentions that he had herds and flocks. And the reason that's significant um, is because much of the basis for wealth in ancient civilization really revolved around your livestock. So when you look, for instance, in the book of Job in chapter 1, when, it, when it's explaining to us and describing to us Job's wealth, it does it in terms of the number of sheep and camels and, and so forth that he had. Because the, the, the multiplicity of livestock really was, was where wealth uh, resided in that culture. And work, play, and stuff just didn't satisfy for Solomon. He tried it all, and he tried it to the nth degree. And when he reached the end of the road, he discovered that it wasn't enough. And that's where we find ourselves. Point number three, the end of the road. Solomon left no stone unturned in his pursuit, in his study. And again, in just this, this one passage from Ecclesiastes, the emphasis is on pleasure. Despite all his efforts, he still failed to gain anything of lasting benefit. Failed to gain anything that was truly worthwhile. He reached the limits of what life has to offer. He got to the end of the road, and it was empty. Possessions. If, if possessions could satisfy you, brothers and sisters, then Solomon would have discovered that. He said in verse 7, he had herds and flocks more than any who had been before him. If money could satisfy you, brothers and sisters, Solomon would have discovered that. I want to show you something. Maybe you haven't seen this. Turn with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 10. Just in terms of the wealth of Solomon, I mean, his wealth is legendary, but look at it right from God's word. 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, take a look, for example, at verse 21. This is where it's talking about uh, Solomon's home and his wealth, uh, gold that came to Solomon in one year, it says back in verse 14, was 666 talents of gold. Don't try to read anything weird into that number. But um, look down at verse 21. All King Solomon's dr drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. Another way of translating that is there was so much gold in ancient Israel in the days of Solomon that silver was not even considered valuable. Look at verse, uh, the same chapter, verse 27. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Imagine that. So, uh, was Solomon wealthy? Yeah. Yeah, he had money. He became great. He surpassed all who were before him, we saw in verse 9. And he had given himself carte blanche to explore pleasure with all these resources available to him. And again, consider what we just read, this, this, this text 
All the things he said he pursued, all the things he tried, all the things he had, all the things he owned. And then, verse 11, he considered it all, the sum total. Verse 11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. Uh, The way the NIV starts out verse 11 is uh, kind of with with verses 1 through 10 as a backdrop. It says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and there's a a Hebrew scholar by the name of Robert Alter. Uh, He's Jewish, um, very, very able uh, Hebrew scholar. And the way... He has his own translation of the Old Testament, and the way Alter describes it is, uh, he, he, he has Solomon saying, I turned about among all my works. So I think it, it's very picturesque. It's like everything that Solomon had, his servants, his flocks, his herds, his gold, his wealth, everything, all of his buildings, his houses, the temple, everything he'd worked on, everything he had done, he's standing with it all around him, he's turning around, looking at all of it. And he makes this disheartening discovery. You can almost sense the wind just vanishing from his sails. There was nothing else to do. He had done every work imaginable. He had enjoyed every worldly pleasure. He had acquired greater wealth, more possessions than anyone else. And his sum was, it was all vanity. Every bit of it. we proved by test that all of life's greatest pleasures will leave you empty if pursued as ends in themselves. Now I want to make one note about Solomon's downfall because you know he, his heart turned away from the Lord. I think when we consider uh, the whole testimony of Scripture Solomon did in, late in life repent and come back to the Lord. But we're told very explicitly that Solomon turned away from God eventually. Here he's recounting his efforts, he's recounting his experiences and his accomplishments, and he does so in part to corroborate the validity of the conclusions that he's going to make for us in Ecclesiastes. I mean, think about it. Uh, If a poor person came to you and said, you know, there's really no ultimate satisfaction in money, Could you take his word for it if he'd never had money? But you can take Solomon's word for it. Solomon could say from experience that none of these things that he'd tried, none of these things that he had done could give that satisfaction. So that's part of what he's saying here. That's part of the importance of his testimony. It corroborates the validity of his conclusions. But we can take this too, at least in part, as a confession of sin. He had gone to excess, and he'd gone way beyond excess. And in doing so, it wasn't just a scientific uh, matter for him. He was in violation of the law of God, the very law of God which he himself would have known. And I want to show you what I mean by that. 
Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. And one of the things that's very interesting about this is that it's not until we get into the time of the prophet Samuel that the Israelites asked for a king. And when you read that account in Samuel, it, it seems like something that sort of came out of the blue, came out of left field that no one was expecting. But in Deuteronomy 17, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 14. This is the law of Moses. This is God communicating to his people through Moses. And he says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Sound familiar? It's exactly what they said in 1 Samuel. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now listen to the word that God gave, the commandments, the instructions that he gave with specific reference to the king that the people would eventually ask for. Listen, verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Start with the horses. Solomon imported horses and he had so many horses that he had to build special cities to keep the horses in and his chariots. But God had said he shall not acquire many horses for himself. You shall not acquire many wives for himself. David had maybe a dozen wives, I think, total. He had some concubines too. 700 wives? When God's word had commanded him not to multiply wives and you shall not multiply gold and silver. <clears throat> he had so much silver that, so much gold that silver wasn't even considered valuable. More gold than any other king on earth had ever had. <clears throat> now the horses and the, the gold and the silver were, were, were one thing and they <clears throat> certainly were transgression of the commandment of God for kings of Israel but it was we're told specifically that it was Solomon's many wives who turned his heart away from the Lord despite his incomparable wisdom he could not recklessly pursue the world without putting his soul in grave danger how could the wisest man on earth turn away from God well through this reckless pursuit of worldly pleasure. So no matter how wise a person is, you can't recklessly pursue the world without putting your soul in danger. No one can, you can't. So take heed to this, brothers and sisters. And let me now close with a couple of points of application. The first one, I want you to look with me again at verse one of this text. <clears throat> this isn't uh, actually really main point of the text 
But notice how Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Solomon is having a conversation with himself. He's talking to himself. And this is instruction for us. As I say, it's not the main point of the passage, but it's helpful because it teaches you, it teaches me, that we can take control of the inner conversation in our hearts and in our minds. You may have heard that expression, Talk to yourself, don't listen to yourself. And it might sound like a contradiction, um, but, but I think you, you can understand this. This is related to self-control. Because our hearts talk to us, don't they? Our hearts, which, you know, the Bible says are, are, are deceitful. Our hearts talk to us, and what we have to do is talk back to our hearts. We have to take control of the conversation. Your heart goes adrift sometimes. Your heart speaks untruths to you, and you have to redirect the conversation. You have to speak the truth to yourself. We're commanded to speak the truth to one another in love. Well, speak the truth to yourself also. When you're tempted to default or kind of lapse into discouragement, when you're tempted to, to say unbelieving things, when your heart is weighed down with doubt or anxiety, when you're tempted to be fearful, take the wheel. Talk to yourself because you have the truth. Take control of the inner conversation. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself and speak the truth to yourself. Shepherd your own heart and mind with the truth of God's word. Then finally, I just want to close by reminding you once more that all of life's greatest pleasures will leave you empty if pursued as ends in themselves. Carnal self-indulgence will always leave you empty, but delighting in God, delighting in God leads to real fulfillment. And I think, and you've experienced this, many of you, you'll even derive more enjoyment and greater satisfaction from the good things that this life gives when you enjoy them as unto the Lord and with an eye to his glory. The world, as they pursue all these things apart from God, they're going to eventually conclude it's all vanity. But you can enjoy God's good, good gifts. You can enjoy them as unto him and really experience delight because he's the giver. And you can enjoy them, quorum Deo, enjoy them before his face. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that right here in your own word you have uh, recorded for us uh, the results of the exploration of our, of our elder brother Solomon, that he did all the research, and he shares his conclusions with us. Lord, may we believe you, may we believe your word, and learn the lesson that Solomon learned the hard way. Lord, help us to find all our satisfaction in you. May we do all uh, as unto you and for your glory, and uh, teach us to enjoy you, to delight in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn.